What she said on 1059 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. I don't think it's any secret that what she said looks at the world through a feminist lens. Call me crazy, but I believe that we should have the same rights, privileges, and freedoms as men. So the news about Roe v. Wade in the States and the appalling rollback of women's reproductive rights has got me a little fired up this week, to say the least. Most women in Canada feel that way and immediately felt protective of our sisters to the south of us and shortly thereafter started to ask, could that happen here? Sadly, it could. My first guest today breaks down how. Lisa Feldstein owns her own law firm and is an adjunct professor at York University where she teaches healthcare law in the Faculty of Health. Lisa joins me to offer some insight into how abortion in Canada works and how it could potentially come under attack in the future. Anne Brody joins me for Saturday Night at the Movies and New Entertainment, which includes a look at season two of Hacks starring Jean Smart, a modern twist on an old tale from Disney called Sneakerella, and The Lincoln Lawyer on Netflix. Nadine Araxi is here to share how workplaces can benefit by making their space more accommodating for neurodivergent employees and what that looks like. We are less than a month away from the Ontario election, and all the parties have released their platforms, including their plans for education. Dr. Prachi Sarvastava joins me to take a look at each platform and, and highlights a few proposals of note, including a return of grade 13 from the Ontario Liberals and how that could help a lot of kids who fell behind during COVID. Canada's beloved The Kids in the Hall returned from the dead, 27 years after their TV series ended to kill us with laughter once again. Dave Foley, Bruce McCullough, Kevin McDonald, Mark McKinney, and Scott Thompson star in a revival launching this week, and Anne Brody has an interview with four of them. Finally, April Aileen wrote her latest song, Easy Love, while in London, England, caught up in a misleading whirlwind romance and then ghosted. Ouch. She quickly realized a common theme while traveling and pursuing her dreams. Listen closely to what people say, but more importantly, watch their actions, because people can tell you exactly what you want to hear, but it's not necessarily the truth. She joins me to discuss and to share the new song in its entirety. It's another full week at What She Said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? It paradise, put up a parking lot. When the news of Roe v. Wade dropped last week, Canadian women immediately felt protective of their American sisters while simultaneously asking, could this happen here? My next guest is a health and fertility lawyer with her own law firm in Ontario. Lisa Feldstein helps clients create families through third-party reproduction, such as surrogacy and egg donation. She is also an adjunct professor at York University, where she teaches healthcare law in the Faculty of Health. 
Interestingly, she also wrote the reproductive law chapter in the university textbook, Introduction to Health Law in Canada, and joins me now to discuss just how worried we should be about reproductive rights in Canada. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I came across you on TikTok. I just love that platform. And I saw a few of your videos and thought, you are the person to talk to. You really know what you're talking about. So uh, let's start with that, our Constitution. Is the right to an abortion in our Constitution? It is not. So our Constitution was actually created in 1867. So it does not actually say anything about abortion. And it actually really doesn't say very much when it comes to healthcare either. Oh, okay. And yeah. I can elaborate on that if you'd like, yes. But healthcare specifically is not really in there either. So this is... When I teach my students, I often start out with constitutional law, and I know people tend to think that sounds very boring, but it actually explains a lot about why things are the way they are. So the short of it is, in 1867, there was this sort of dividing up of who gets to make laws about what. The federal government, so parliament, they get these things over here like criminal law and our currency and military, and the provinces, they get to make laws about other categories. So there was a divvying up of who makes laws. Healthcare does not fall on either side. The closest that we have is provinces were given management of hospitals. But healthcare itself, abortion itself, is not actually anywhere in our Constitution Act. So tell me then about Margaret Toller in 1988, please. Sure. So that is the case that is known for really making abortion legal in Canada. And up until that point, it was against the law. There was language in the criminal code, so that's no, our main criminal law in Canada, that made it illegal for someone to do an abortion, perform an abortion on a person. So if this is affecting doctors, but also people trying to perform abortions on themselves to induce an abortion if they were had a uh, pregnancy and they did not want to be pregnant. So this was a case in which Dr. Morgan Toller and a few other physicians as well, they were criminally charged because they performed abortions outside of what was lawful at the time. So at the time, abortions were actually legal, but in a very limited way. In order to access abortion, a person had to go before a therapeutic abortion committee, basically present their case. They had to be able to demonstrate that they needed the abortion to save their life, essentially that their health or life was at risk. And if they were approved, they could potentially access an abortion. But there were all kinds of other barriers. The, the hospital e needed to be accredited to even have this committee, and they needed to have enough doctors to sit on the committee and then separately have enough to perform an abortion. And there were a lot of delays. So one of the big problems that were, was explored in the Morgenthaler case is even when people were approved, the delays meant that they were having to access that service so much later. And it was more risky for the people uh, having abortions. It was more psychologically traumatizing. And so the Morgenthaler case was looking at this limited version of abortion that was lawful and said, this violates women's rights under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So it, the, it, it was largely tied to the psychological uncertainty of not knowing would they be eligible and the delays. And so what that case did, it was the Supreme Court of Canada saying the language in the criminal code violates the charter. So our law doesn't exist in some freestanding abortion is legal act. Instead, it's an absence of a law, an absence of a prohibition in the criminal code. And there was, there was yeah, no new law was drafted to address that. It was, it's, so it's really a gap. There's no prohibition rather than it's expressly allowed. Could we be seeing a, a, a reversal of the law in Canada? Is that a possibility? So in theory, it is. It's not. It, now, this is a very powerful Supreme Court of Canada case, but that doesn't mean if a court was given an opportunity to reconsider that they couldn't go in another direction. And this, 
had you asked me this years ago, I would have thought that was impossible. I would have said the Supreme Court of Canada is the last stop. That's how our court system works. That's the last court. There's no further right of appeal. And if they said it's legal, this is the end of the story. And so what changed my mind was in the medical assistance and dying context, because there was a case heard in the 90s. Uh, it was then called assisted suicide. There was a case heard by the Supreme Court of Canada, and they upheld the prohibition in the criminal code. So assisted suicide is criminal. It's not allowed. Fast forward a few decades in the Carter versus Canada case, the Supreme Court of Canada changed its mind. And that is when medical assistance and dying became legal. And they had a different legal analysis how they got there. But the end result is they had an opportunity to revisit an issue and they went in a different direction. So currently right now, the issue in Canada, though, is not that it's illegal. It's the access to abortion. Is that correct? Okay. so can you expand on that a little bit for me, please? Absolutely. Certainly. So there's a lot of resources online if anyone wants to learn more. And you can look and see where are abortion clinics located. Are there in your jurisdiction, are there freestanding clinics or are they only performed at hospitals? And so what you can find if you look across Canada is there are some provinces that have very few places that perform abortions. And depending on where somebody lives, that might be a very significant trip. It might be very expensive. If somebody is in a rural community, they probably don't have any facilities, so they might have to actually travel far distance, take time off work, spend a lot of money getting there. And depending on the circumstance, if they are trying to do so without perhaps a partner or family member knowing, it's that much more difficult if it involves a journey to get to a clinic. So r right now then, I mean, I know that there are uh, pills you can take to induce abortion that are, so you don't have to visit a hospital. Uh, is our access to those things as also, also limited? So that has been an evolution. It was previously harder to access those because there were all kinds of rules that made it more difficult for doctors to actually store the medication. And, and it used to be that in order to take the oral medication, a person had to be observed by their doctor, even though the majority of medications, you get a prescription and you take it on your own. And so some of those barriers existed as time is going on, access is becoming easier when it comes to that medication. And some of that has to do with the pandemic. I read an article uh, from February 2022 that was just talking about the abortion and kind of as telemedicine has evolved, improving uh, the access to that medication as well. So it, it is going in the right direction from an access perspective. So I think right now, I mean, a lot of people are just really worried in Canada, a lot of women are worried. Uh, that we could be seeing a clawback of our rights and autonomy over our own bodies. So what do we do? How can we make sure that this is cemented as a law, as something that is a right? Yeah, so I think there's a few different approaches. It, 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 to answer the question that you asked in a very direct way for anybody who wanted to see it as a law, that would require law being the government to create such a law. So advocating that we actually introduce a, you know, right to abortion act, something to that effect. This is where that constitution piece starts to get a little bit complicated because healthcare does not fall to either jurisdiction. And so sometimes certain topics like abortion and medical assistance and dying and even some public health matters fall in this kind of overlap where it's not entirely clear in all cases who has authority to make such a law. So if a law were to come out, sometimes there are lawsuits that follow sometimes lawsuits between provinces even, um, or sort of rather between provinces and federal government. And I'm thinking of a completely different context about regulating uh, the, the Assisted Human Reproduction Act, which talks about surrogacy and other topics, but there are 
lawsuits where there's this dispute about who actually gets to make this law in the first place. So putting aside that there can be those complications about which government gets to make such a law, advocating for legislation that actually protects the right to abortion would be one avenue. Another avenue is through our votes. Who are we voting for and what do they believe in? That can also come through in terms of communicating with our elected officials. Elected officials who want our votes may, of course, there are some some politicians, their views are probably quite cemented and others may be more malleable and open to hearing what do their constituents want. So being vocal with politicians about views on abortion and letting them know if you want my vote, this is where we're looking for the person we vote for to stand. And then a very unusual strategy that I have considered um, would actually be looking specifically at the Conservative Party. I don't think it's controversial to recognize that's the party that's sort of most recognized as potentially threatening this, the right to abortion and looking. And one option would be to potentially join the Conservative Party. And I know this is going to be very, very shocking, but hear me out. Join for the purpose of voting on which person is the leader of the Conservative Party at election time, vote for whoever you want to vote for. It does not have to be the Conservatives who are voting as you wish, but actually if, if some of us join the Conservative Party for the purpose of having a say of which person is the leader, because if you're a member in a party, you actually get to vote on which person is the leader of that party. Oh, that's a so very I, interesting I, tactic. I like it. It's not a strategy I've heard <laughs> often. And I recognize for, for some people pay, paying to join any party that's not aligned with their values would not uh, feel right. And I totally recognize that as well. But there could be some ability to join a party for the purpose of saying, we don't want it to be this individual. We'd rather it be this individual. And that way I'll go vote for whoever I want to vote for. Whether that's conservative or not, that's none of my business, but specifically not uh, <laughs> trying to not allow the people who are anti-abortion to be in the position where if the conservatives were to win, that they would be the one leading the party. All right. Excellent, excellent uh, information and advice. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lisa. I want people to be able to obviously follow along with your TikToks, uh, but, you know, connect with you as well. So where can they find you? So for anybody who's looking for more information about sort of these abortion videos I'm doing that, and, and I never really thought that would be where where my t- TikToks would end up. I, I kind of just got back into TikTok recently focusing on, on my fertility law practice, but I'm going to keep it up because I think it's important. And we're having this conversation. I have information I can share. So TikTok, my handle is at health lawyer, health as in healthcare, at health lawyer. For anybody who's interested in fertility services as in egg donation, surrogacy and so forth, my website is www.familyhealthlaw.ca. Okay, incredible. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today. This was great. My pleasure. Thanks for giving a platform to this important topic. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Joining me now for Saturday Night at the Movies is Anne Brody. I'm super excited about this week. It's a Gen X throwback. Kids in the Hall is back. And let's talk about it. Okay. So Prime Video not only is running the original series from the 80s, they've rebooted it for now. And they've also got a documentary on the Kids in the Hall coming up next week. 
So it's just, it's time to celebrate with the boys again. And it's Dave Foley, Bruce McCullough, Kevin McDonald, Mark McKinney, and Scott Thompson at their finest. Honestly, watching the sketches, I, where do these ideas come from? They're so bizarre. It's so funny. I loved, I love seeing Dave Foley on Last One Laughing uh, with yeah, Colin yeah. Mokri. I thought that was so great. And it's, it, it occurs to me now that that might have been a little bit of a teaser for kids in the hall coming back since it's also <laughs> Amazon. Uh, but so great to see them and seeing those old familiar characters back. Oh, uh, yes, they revived them. It was it's wonderful. It was great. And also they've got some pretty cool guest stars. They've got Pete Davidson, of all people. And it's so Toronto-centric, which surprised me. And he actually, the the thing with his character is he's calling in from his farm in Gimli, Manitoba, Pete Davidson. So it's, <laughs> and just these ideas are insane. There's a, a sinister tropical fruit plate. Uh, I just can't tell you how funny it is. I just, talk about lol. I just roared watching this thing. So thank you, product video. Yeah, this is this is going to be a good one. This is definitely anybody looking for some nostalgia or just a laugh. Uh, Kids in the Hall is the best. Let's talk about Memoria because you sent me the trailer. I got to tell you, it was weird. Yeah, I know. It looks weird. Um, but it, it's an important film. It stars the magnificent Tilda Swinton. She is unparalleled in, in the world of acting in terms of her diversity and her weird presence her she's she's quite a figure anyway she plays a woman a scottish botanist living in medellin in colombia um and she's tormented by these sonic booms that wake her up and they and disturb her throughout the day nobody else hears them only she hears them and we hear them and uh, parking lots at nighttime the cars start to honk and and alarm and go off like that nobody hears except her so she she asks the sound recordist to uh duplicate it in order to figure out what's causing it and she has medical tests uh so that's one part of the story the other part is she goes wandering off in the mountains on her own and meets this incredible farmer who's never left his village uh and they they don't do much. They they more or less lie next to each other in the grass and and think their con conversations. It's it's otherworldly. It's sort of mystic mystical in parts. And I think what it is, it's just it it beautifully walks between belief and disbelief. And as you referred to, it asks a lot of the viewer. But it is so amazing. It's disturbing. It's unique. And it is absolutely essential viewing so this sounds like a, a movie for the deep thinkers and for those <laughs> of us who like to just stay you know keep it simple let's talk about sneakerella because that seems like just some nice fun oh lord it's funny it's just it's a grand piece of filmmaking from disney plus and it's shot in toronto and it's about of all things sneaker culture I mean, who knew, right? So it's a young lad who is uh, the stepbrother in, a, in with a, his, sorry, he's a young guy growing up. He's lost his mother. He's forced to live with his stepbrothers and stepfather. They're mean to him, just like Cinderella, Sneakerella. 
Um, and he has a fairy godfather who is a community garden leader who sort of sorts things out for him the way the fairy godmother did for Cinderella. And he winds up becoming, oh, I don't want to give it away, but I mean, it's no secret what happens in Cinderella. He meets a girl whose father happens to be a sneaker mogul <clears throat> and his designs that he's been creating for years and years about sneakers may have a chance of taking off. The singing, the dancing, the exuberance, the, even the tears, everything is so authentic and real and, and just so bouncy and energetic. So I would really say if you want some excellent light entertainment, watch Sneakerella, no matter your age. All right, we got, we got time for one more, Anne. Uh, what do you think we should talk about? Hacks, 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 hacks. Have you seen Hacks on HBO? I haven't. And I remember you talking about season one last year with Jean Smart and thinking, I want to watch this because I love Jean Smart. She's brilliant. And she won all the awards for that last year. She swept it. And here she is back for season two. And Laurie Metcalf, I don't know if you know her from Roseanne and any number of, of comedies. And she's also a serious actor. She plays the bus driver as Deborah and Eva go across country on a, on a uh, concert tour. <laughs> she's like a military leader. Uh, very funny. But anyway, so Deborah has been kicked out of Las Vegas out of her residency because she had a show that bombed. She said all the wrong things. So she's trying to recoup her reputation by hitting small spots across America. And that takes her to some very peculiar places and very weird situations. And she's such a diva, but you love her anyway. I mean, she's a super diva. Um, and that's part of the, the charm of it. And I like it because in designing women, she wasn't, she wasn't the diva. She was the lowest on the totem pole. Now she's the highest. So <laughs> life is good for her. <laughs> yeah. And she's, she's just a wonderful actress. So um, I'm, I am, I am going to actually commit to watching that. So where can we catch Hacks? Hacks is on Crave, an HBO original series on Crave. So you go for it, girl. I think you'll thank me. And Jean Smart. I, I, I know I will. You, all, you never lead me astray. Uh, all right, Dan. So you've got all of these and more on whatshesaidtalk.com. And you'll be back next week. Yay. See you soon. Nadine Araxi has spent over two decades writing personal essays and service journalism for some of Canada's most prominent media brands. Through her work as a story coach with Kickstartology Coaching, she helps women build a life that thrills them by examining and rewriting the stories we tell ourselves. Recently, Nadine took on the topic of neurodiversity in the workplace for an article in Canadian Business called Is Your Workplace Supporting Neurodiverse Employees? about how many workplaces have not considered solutions to make the workplace more inclusive for neurodivergence. She joins me now to discuss. Welcome back to what she said, Nadine. Thanks for having me, Candice. It's so nice to uh, speak with you again. So tell me, what prompted you to write this article? Because I believe you have a little bit of a personal story to this. Yeah, so I am 47 now. I was diagnosed with ADHD at 35. 
um, which is kind of late. Typically, I think the average age for diagnosis tends to be seven. Um, and for me, I spent many years struggling in the workforce. I am very creative. I'm very personable, but I would struggle with things like timelines, deadlines, planning, things that we now loop under the title of executive function. So for me, it was very much a journey of how can I help others? Both my own children got diagnosed with ADHD uh, in the fall of last year. And I thought it would be really great to start talking about what it's like to be a neurodiverse person in the workplace, how we can support them. It's interesting to me. Were you prompted to go and get a diagnosis for ADHD when your children were diagnosed? Because I know it's highly hereditary, correct? Correct. Highly hereditary. Children, that's often a path for, especially for women where ADHD is highly underdiagnosed because it tends to be daydreaming and chatting in class. And, you know, when we think of ADHD, we think of hyperactivity in terms of, you know, jumping out of a chair and disrupting people in a classroom. With girls, we don't see that. No, I was actually diagnosed before my children. And so when they were started to struggle in school, they, it, it became clear to me that they needed to be tested and assessed to see, you know, if they had it or not. It's, uh, it, it's a tricky thing because, uh, I think you need a very experienced person to assess your ADHD. Um, for me, it was very much I was struggling at work, and th- there seemed to be a pattern, and I couldn't figure out how to get over it. And when I had children, and I couldn't stay two hours extra after work to catch up on things that I may have procrastinated on, or I may have spent too much time researching on something. ADHD often has a hyper-focused tendency where you really deep dive on something. You can lose hours when you're deep diving on on something. Um, But neurodiversity is not limited to ADHD. So ADHD is my experience. There are others who have uh, ASD, autism spectrum disorder, dyslexia, dyscalculia. There's a bunch of things some people consider uh, OCD, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, a neurodiversity issue. So it's anything where your brain is not neurotypical, as we call it. So your brain is causing you to have issues in your day to day that is not typical. So while I totally agree with you that you know uh, people who who are neurodivergent uh, could use accommodations in the workplace, what are the benefits? Because I'm sure some business is listening to this right now saying, okay, great, but it's going to cost me money or, or you know, um, how do I make these accommodations and still remain profitable? Uh, what are the benefits to accommodating your workplace for people who are neurodivergent? Yeah, so I think the best teams have a range of diversity. And with neurodiversity, we call it uh, cognitive diversity, for example. You have people who think differently on teams. ADHD brains are very good at creative problem solving, for example, or any sort of creative task. They over-index on that in a way that, you know, a typical person might not be able to access. Um, ASD brains can be very good at patterning, mathematics, data analysis. Um, And so coding is another one. So it's about looking at the overall strengths of the various members of your team, figuring out where there's gaps and trying to hire for those gaps and really building towards people's strengths rather than making people feel like, 
well, you're not the right person for the job. It's often a hiring issue more than it is someone's difference that's the issue. And there's so many gifts with that. You know, I mentioned a, a few of them. These are people who do certain tasks at incredibly high levels. We talk a lot about um, the, the prevalence of ASD, for example, in Silicon Valley. A lot of the technology that we use every day was developed by neurodiverse brains. And so there are definite advantages. Uh, it doesn't have to be expensive for employers. So I really want to get that across. It's often thinking about areas that are distracting, environments that are distracting for uh, ADHD brains that can be noisy places. You know, you want to have quiet zones. Uh, you want to have the ability to uh, give them focus areas like things like noise canceling headsets. ASD, very similar. You want to limit the distractions and the sense they have often sensitivity to things like lighting, sound, could be fabrics, you know, and just working with your employees to create a zone. It doesn't have to be the whole office, but we're seeing so many open concept offices now. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with that post COVID, but the open concept office is terrible for neurodiverse folks. It makes it really hard for them to be productive. That's it. This is a fascinating conversation to me, and especially because I don't know, maybe it's just uh, I'm here about it more and more of people who are being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. So we recorded a longer podcast with Christina from Dig a Little Deeper. We went in hard on this topic for a half an hour. So I encourage people to go over to what she said, talk with Candace Sampson and listen to that longer podcast. It's fascinating. But if people want to read your article in Canadian Business or follow along with you, Nadine, where can they do that? Yeah, so you can uh, Google me, Nadine Araksi, A-R-A-K-S-I, and you'll find my work that way. Or you can head over to CanadianBusiness.com to uh, find the article on supporting employees, neurodiverse employees in the workplace. Um, I can also be found on all the social media, media channels easy enough, uh, and kickstartology.com, which is my coaching business. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Incredibly, after the utter chaos that our education system has had to endure the last couple of years, the Ontario government is looking to cut over $1.3 billion from the education budget. I just know that my next guest has some thoughts on that. Dr. Pranchi Srivastava specializes in education and global development and is the visiting professor at McGill University. Over the last few months, we've had ongoing discussions about the state of education and some ways to fix it. Today, we're going to take a look at the election platform now that the writ has dropped. Welcome back to the show, Prachi. Hi, Candice. Thanks for having me on. So you've had some uh, time to review the different uh, platforms. What's out there that's different? Is there anything new? Uh, rollbacks? 
give it to me. My first comment really is about the three main parties, um, the NDPs, the Liberals, and of course the the, the PCs. It's sh- it's shocking to me that we haven't actually seen a full plan on education from the current uh, governing party. Um, that to me was the number was the first um, confusion. Um, whereas the other two parties and also the Green Party, they do have platforms and and plans for education that are spelled out in their overall vision and and also have released separate documents on that. Uh, the Liberals did and the NDPs have also released a uh, you know, statement uh, with their priorities for education. So I think, you know, the first question to ask is why is it that the current ruling party hasn't put that out? Uh, they released the budget and there was some conversation around uh, more in terms of investigative reports really coming out to show that there have been de facto cuts to education. I had estimated all along, we have an episode uh, in your podcast where I was also estimating around $1.3 billion of a cut. And that seems to be the number uh, that is coming out. Uh, we know that under this party, the FAO uh, did a uh, assessment of the budgets and it's predicted to drop further up by about $12.3 billion uh, by 20, 2029-30 in terms of the plans that this current government has put into place for education. So that's a rather large uh, cut for education, despite the positive spin uh, that we have been hearing all along that this government has invested the most in public education. When you actually look at the expenditure and when you look at the de facto cuts, uh, they're actually quite large. So that's my first comment. Yeah, I just want to jump in here quickly, just because... This I hear these things and it infuriates me because I think that we don't, we're not understanding or not grasping the impact of an undereducated society and what that means for us. It's not just, you know, less things in the classroom for kids to play with or do. It really has long-term effects. That's why this conversation is so important. So sorry, Prachi, I just had to jump in. <laughs> Go ahead, please, with your next point. No, it's it's very important. And in fact, you know, it's it's a question going into a, a, a an election, an election at any level of government. Here we're talking about the provincial election uh, in, in Canada. The province is the single most important authority for education governance, because uh, that is where those decisions are made. Uh, it is a decentralized system. The gov- the provincial government really has a, the role in terms of how the education system is going to be managed, what kinds of resources are there, and what that means for our collective futures. And we have to understand that education is an issue of a collective future. This is what determines so much of socioeconomic opportunities, health and well-being trajectories going on. And as we also in Ontario Given that we've had the longest school closures in Canada and rivaling the longest average in North America and Europe, this is, should really be a key election issue. Um, and it should be a key issue for people going forward in terms of thinking about how to rebuild and recover from, you know, what we've been enduring over the last two, nearly two and a half years now. So, um, that's, that's the key point. Now, um, the NDPs and the Liberals both have uh, come out with plans that are uh, fairly similar in the sense that 
you know, there are some differences in, in some of the numbers uh, to some of their uh, to some of their uh, proposals. For example, uh, both um, both parties have said that they want to hire uh, new teachers, new numbers of teachers. Um, both parties have talked about eliminating the EQAO as we know it um, and replacing it with a different kind of assessment uh, strategy. Uh, we're not entirely sure what that would be right now, but that's that's something that has been uh, discussed. Both parties have talked about uh, health and and mental uh, uh, well-being and providing different supports in those areas. Um, I think one of the big differences between the two is the big discussion around the potential reintroduction of grade 13. And that was um, talked about by the Liberals, by the Liberal Party, uh, to say that, you know, we might want to bring grade 13 back as a uh, proposal for the next four years and then see how that goes. Um, and I think that's, you know, one of the big uh, distinguishing features between the two. Um, both have talked about looking at the expenditure to education. So there are, you know, uh, similarities. Uh, but where I think, you know, we would like to see is some more detail uh, in terms of some of those proposals. Um, for example, if we eliminate the EQAO, uh, what kind of a system would be, would be, we, be putting into place. Now, in terms of standardized testing, you know, I'm not a fan of only using standardized testing measures to understand uh, progress and, and achievement because we know that there are multiple intelligences and there are lots of different ways to, to measure progress. I do think they're still important, but I think there are a number of other measures that should be including, included, including indicators around uh, health and well-being and wellness. Um, and equity indicators are very important. Um, we don't have access to race-based data uh, publicly in this province in terms of the schools. And we know that that's a problem in terms of equity. The Green Party has said that, you know, they, they would like to institute uh, a system of also collecting race-based data. Um, so these are some questions in terms of what to look at. The introduction of grade 13, I think um, that has a potential in terms of thinking about recovering some of the lost time that we've seen in Ontario. Uh, we know that there have been learning losses. We know that there have been other harms by school closures. Um, we don't have a very well-developed data system, so we don't really know across the province uh, how that affects all of the students. But we do know from similar studies, it could be anywhere between two months to two years of a lag, depending on which grade, what subject, uh, what kinds of issues we're looking at. And that's, again, the reason why I bring that up again, again, why I'm bringing up the issue around EQAO and grade 13 is because they're linked. Data and access to data, access to public data, and also what we need to do in terms of recovery are linked. So if we're going to dismantle the, the system of EQAO as it is, then we need to think about what are the other data points that we're going to collect because I still think having a broad, comprehensive system to actually gauge what's going on is very important. The problem is when it becomes linked to high stakes testing, when it becomes linked to placement, um, when it becomes linked to things like streaming. And now, of course, there is a proposal to de-stream because we also know that there have been some issues around that. But it also means that there should be opportunities for um, 
supplementing and for also boosting core skills, boosting other skills. All of this is very much dependent on having a system that allows us to track what is happening in schools in an equitable way. Um, so anytime there's a discussion around dismantling uh, an, uh, an existing system, uh, there needs to be a real conversation about, okay, so what is that going to be replaced by? And, and how are we actually going to include uh, equity indicators in that? On the question of grade 13, I think we know that we've lost time. So how is that, is that going to be an optional year right now? It said that it will be optional. What does that actually mean in terms of entry to college and university? Because it could be optional, but if those are core credits required, then it's not really optional to the students who want to go further. And that's where the blockages are. The key, the key blockages are in those transition years. All right. All good questions people are going to have to ask and look into uh, as we uh, get closer to the election. You're going to be back just before the election happens in June. I'm really looking forward to that final discussion. Uh, this has been great. I hope people have got a lot out of this, uh, this these series that I've done with you. But uh, where can people connect with you and follow along? I know you're big on Twitter. So what's your handle there? It's at Prachi Srivas, P-R-A-C-H-I-S-R-I-V-A-S okay. on Twitter. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining me today, Prachi. Thank you. Forget your troubles, come on, get happy. You better chase all your cares away. Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy. Get ready for the judgment day. Gen X will love the nostalgia of this next segment, and a whole new generation will be thrilled to get to know Canadian legends, the kids in the hall. Anne Brody has an interview with four of the kids, Scott Thompson, Bruce McCullough, Mark McKinney, and Dave Foley, who discuss their return to Amazon Prime. Well, the curse is lifted and the kids are back. Guys, I knew we should have cryogenically frozen our bodies. Well, who's financing this time? The devil again? I wonder what it's like, given the new kind of spirit of where we're, the times we're living in, how it changes things. Um, it's, it's nice to be in this important time as the world is changing so much. It's really great to be able to put something back into culture yeah. that kind of uh, response to the times and is response to our lives in these times. Yeah. It's exciting to be kind of yanked out of our little worlds and then plop right back into the spotlight and say, uh, make a comment, like have an effect. And that's exciting and fulfilling. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine it as a matter terrifying. of fact. It's terrifying. All hands on deck. Do you know what Amazon wants from Kids in the Hall? Y yes, Don, a, a funny show, but one that is free of targets. <gasps> topical topics. It's all a government conspiracy. Alarming edginess or unsettling settings. You said it yourselves. It's uh, Bruce, you said it, it's part of it's uh, important for the culture. It's important for the fans. It's important for a new generation. I think what you what you it's momentous, really. Um, and I don't want to get too corny or too serious, but it, I think it means a lot to a lot of people. 
well, that we're going to see you again. I think so. And I mean, we started doing it, which was like, oh, yeah, let's do a show. And we've been touring and writing stuff. And then, you know, then I would post uh, two, two of our Kathy mugs, just two mugs, which drove Amazon crazy because we weren't <laughs> supposed to post anything from the set. And it's like, you know, 400,000 people saw it and were excited. Like it's so it was like, it's great to go away and be reminded how much you were missed. And also, you know, we'll see what people think about the show, but we're, we're fairly proud of it, which is about as proud as we ever are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I think that's we proud. Yeah. yeah. We each think a handful of the sketches are great and none of them are the same handful. <laughs> yeah. So that's five are. separate handfuls. Yeah. So there's five good handfuls of sketches. Yeah. So we all agree that gender parity is a good thing. This is a bad idea. Boom, Fox, not. So sorry. I've opened a can of worms, haven't I? A customer just ordered the Tarte de Bleu et Sauvage and then called it a pie. <gasps> Just give me a little sort of hint as to a sketch or two that are of interest. Oh, uh, well, the Cathy's come back, the secretaries, they come back and, and AT and love and they, um, well, they deal with the world's, can I say it? Last facts machine. The last facts. They make the last facts. Um, yeah. So we have, a, we have a lot of old characters, actually Fran and Gordon and their, and their son, Brian come back. Yeah. Um, and you know, with this, we have no guideposts. It's just, Hey, we wrote a Kathy's. Hey, we didn't write a uh, cabbage head. So that's the way it works, but it, it's kind of nice to be able to revisit certainly Fran and Gordon as they're a bit older yeah. um, and, you know, dealing with different things and we're the same people, but we're not, of course. And some of our characters that were older, when they came back, they got, they were allowed to get older. Which yeah. is very interesting with a sketch. Well, why not? You usually let why that not? happen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm saying now that we're, I mean, not, look at we're not the actual age of the characters we used to play. Well, yeah. that's the thing. Luckily, I think with sketch comedy, a lot of the characters we wanted to play were older. Yeah. Because they're more lived in and they're more funny. Well, yeah. we're, we're mocking our parents and our teachers. Nothing and wrong with that. I mean, it's we're more weathered. We're, we're more. You can say it, Anne. Sexier. You can say it. Sexier. You can say it. Sexier. I'll yeah. say it right there. Yeah. Fuck off, pigs, or the tower gets cracked. Ow. You will be eradicated. <laughs> Hilarious. People get to troubles, get happy, your cares fly away. Shout hallelujah, get happy, get ready for your judgment more with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. My final guest today has a song that is going to hit a chord with many women, of that I have no doubt. Canadian singer-songwriter April Aileen's second single, Easy Love, from her upcoming album, Bad Things, is an ode to anyone who has been ghosted in a relationship. She joins me now to discuss and then to share the full track with us on what she said. Welcome back to the show, April. Candace, it's nice to see you again. Uh, I have to know the backstory for this song, so please share. Well, I was on the road traveling, and I was actually over in London, England, and 
you know, I had an experience where, you know, I had met somebody and things were going really well. And then all of a sudden, you know, they just um, entirely back off from the interaction, from the texting, from the calls, from the interest, you know. And uh, after realizing that a lot of my friends had also been recently going through the same thing with with somebody, uh you know, the term ghosting, we realized what that meant. And I think it's something, you know, anybody can resonate with. And it's, you know, it's it's frustrating um, for anybody that's been on the other side of being ghosted. And I think, you know, I sat down and wrote this song as words of encouragement to anybody that's gone through it to realize it's not within, it's not something with them, but it's usually the person that's ghosting that has something going on you know, whether it's commitment issues or, or something psychological or maybe overwhelming or stressful in their life. And they just, you know, but hey, it's like a, uh, it's a, it's a bullet dodged, in my opinion, you get to see what somebody's long term actions will be like. So count your blessings. <laughs> it, it's such a strange phenomenon ghosting. And I don't know when it started i i guess it's maybe a thing with you know the, the rise of online dating apps and such. And it's easy to just stop talking to somebody. So people have moved that to other things, but it's a very hurtful thing, isn't it? It is. And I, I think, you know, like nobody wants to be led on. And it's interesting with the sort of swiping society that we have with relationships. And ironically, like the people or yeah, the characters involved in this song, <laughs> we'll leave them anonymous. Um, it, it wasn't anything online, but what I've come to realize is that a lot of people or having issues because the online world makes you see somebody as a 2D figure. It's a photo, you know, you're looking at it on your phone, you get a couple details about them, and that's about it. Now, once you start getting to know the personality and you meet them in person, like things change once you start to actually get to know them. And so I think, you know, it's at least the last five to six years, I've noticed it pretty uh, predominantly with, with the millennial age group. That, that get the ghosting. And, you know, it's crazy to me, like one of my friends, she's so beautiful inside and out. And, you know, she was dating this guy for about five to six months and, you know, had met the family. Things are going in a great direction. And, and bam, just out of nowhere, just you don't hear from them. So, you know, and you kind of wonder if it was something that you said, is it something you did? You start questioning. And then, you know, I, I came to the realization with this song that there's boundaries to be set and it's self-worth and you know you decide in a relationship if somebody's treating you the right way or not and then you let them know and if they keep treating you like that then you know you walk away <laughs> well i love that you've you've written a song that many many women will relate to and hopefully it will help them get through uh, a ghosting experience uh so where can people get the song april uh if they want to download it or the album Oh, so the album will be out in August. I actually head to your area, to Niagara Falls, to play Canada Games on August 15th. Uh, so I'll be releasing the album then. But the single just came out. It's Easy Love, E-A-Z-Y Love. It's on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer. But, you know, Spotify and Apple Music are our predominant stations in North America or, uh, you know, platforms. And uh, it's also, I'll be releasing a music video as well. And yeah, would appreciate the the follows it's april aileen it's a bit tricky with a y and two l's on april and aileen with an a so yeah all right incredible we're going to put all that in the liner notes for the show uh and in the meantime we're going to close out this week's show with easy love from april aileen awesome thank you 
That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com. And be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to re-listen to this episode and find full details for all of today's guests. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. It's 5 a.m. and I've lost myself again. Tried to sleep, but I can't pretend. So why'd you kiss me? But now you turn away. But it's not fair, cause I thought you said you'd stay. You don't want me in the morning. You don't want me if I wanna stay. You talk to me like you're falling, but you ain't calling. Cause it's easy, love. You just want me in the evening. You just want me when it's time to play. You talk to me like you're falling, but you ain't calling. Cause it's easy, It's easy love